welcome to Offwatch, a podcast by the Ocean Race. Last week, I had the pleasure of talking to Charles Cordrelia, the winning skipper from Dongfong Race Team. And if you saw that interview, you'll know that he was pretty passionate when he was reminiscing about the moment he discovered that the secret was out. The other boats now knew what the Chinese entry were doing with their keel adjustments, something that had arguably given them a performance edge on the first two legs. So I thought it'd be a good idea to talk to somebody whose job was to find those secrets of speed lurking with the other teams. Roscoe Monson from Team Axinabel sat down with me and discussed how they went about finding that performance edge. Roscoe Monson was the onshore navigator and performance analyst for Team Axinabel in the last edition of the race. The person whose task it is to uncover those small corners of performance that the other teams may be hiding for the VO65. Roscoe, thank you very much for joining me. I find your role absolutely fascinating. And my first question to you is, when people know what it is that you're trying to do, and I'm sure... There is a lot of skill to it, and we're going to come to that in a minute, not least with the navigational side. But when people realise that you might be looking over their shoulder at that little mark, or you might just be picking up on a slight word that they put in a sentence carelessly, do you find that people start to be a little bit cagey and a little bit wary of maybe talking to you in, in certain cases? Um, uh, I don't, I don't really think so. I think, you know, the guys that understand sailing and understand the Volvo and understand what's needed, they're all looking at it. They're all looking for it. <laughs> it's just someone actually gave me that job title to go and do it. So, um, no, I mean, they're a great bunch of guys that everyone's looking at everyone else. It's all part of the game. The America's cup, they have spying as part of it, you know, proper paid spies all around the world chasing the other teams. So, it's a part of sailing, you know, it's a part of Formula One, looking at the other teams, trying to, trying to gain as much knowledge as quickly as possible and, um, and take, the team, take the team as quickly as possible to the, to the top of the podium. Um, yeah. Well, I want to dig into it and, and I, I almost want to put a disclaimer right at the beginning of this interview. I really am looking forward to having a, a technical conversation. I would, I, I'm looking forward to sort of diving into uh, some areas where the science starts getting interesting. So if that's, if you're listening to this and that's not your thing, I'm very sorry. Um, but before I do that, obviously you're an accomplished navigator. You've got skills uh, in that uh, area. I want to ask you about the circumstances which caused you to be there navigating at the last minute, leg one in the last edition. But before I do that, let's, let's just explain why it is that um, you're who you are. I mean, the first time you get involved with the ocean race is Pirates of the Caribbean 2005, six? That's correct, yes. Yeah. So I was with Paul K. Ard on the team. Um, Jules Salter was navigator. Um, and yeah, I came on as, uh, on the electronic side of things to look after all the electronics for the team. In those days, there wasn't a boatyard. Each team had to take their own people around the world with them. And at that time, yeah, I was 26. And um, luckily I went for a trial with the team um, the, they, they called it there. It was the pimp my ride session in Sanchenzo. It was six weeks before the race and the boat was in a thousand pieces in a shed. And I turned and Jules, uh, Jules said, come down and give him a hand to put it back together. Uh, and we went down, put the boat back together. And, and from there, Kimo and, uh, Paul Kerr sat me down and said, do you want to come around with us? And that's, that's where the adventure all started. Is that, uh, something you're quite interested in, in terms of, 
those more complicated electronic systems that we start seeing on the high-end performance boats? Yeah, I mean, before that, Volvo, I'd already been doing that on a lot of the maxis like Leopard of London and a lot of the super yachts around the world. Mm. So that was already the background. And, and the, the story goes how Jules, it was Jules Salter that phoned me up. We were putting Leopard of London together for a transatlantic race. And the long story short, the boat got hit by lightning literally 10 days before the race. Everything fried, absolutely every diode, every piece of electronic equipment fried on the boat. And um, a good technician in Newport, Rhode Island, Rick Vigiano, who was there, and myself, managed to get the boat back together in 10 days' time, All replaced all the electronics on the boat, and Jules turned up thinking it was going to be cancelled over. And all he had to do was load the polars into the system, and off we went. And it was from that he was like, okay, I've got, if I need help, this is the guy to call. You know, and to be able to put a boat like that together again in 10 days, that's, that was a lot of work. And, that, and that's from that that led on to the Volvo Ocean Race then, which was in those days with the Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, the first night the boat went out, the bomb doors blew off and the boat filled up with water. And I think around the world, I think I, I rewired that boat six times around the world in that race at six of the stopovers. And that's, you know, that's that's a huge task every time. And it's not just a little rewire. We were rewiring huge, 80% of the wiring in the boat each stopover just to keep the thing alive to get it to the next stop. So, um, you know, the, that was the early, the first version of the Volvo 70, the Volvo 70 setup. Um, and yeah, the, the boats were so powerful, so wet, just technology hadn't evolved at that point to where it is now. The boats are so reliable now and the equipment is so reliable. And that's what allows us now in this stage, life has evolved, you know, 10 years ago in those days, we, we were collecting data, but we didn't have the commercial software to deal with it, you know, to process it. It was all about making the equipment reliable, whereas nowadays the, the equipment's all reliable, and now we can restore the data, record the data, you know, pass it around, and then process it at the end. So it just shows the evolution of, of the technology that's got, that goes into the race, and I'll be honest, that the Volvo, the, the Ocean Race pushes. And it's, it's, I think with this race, it was the forensics of, you know, it's, it's like forensic analysis. Uh, and I think the, the point you were making about the job of um, the espionage, let's say, it used to be in the in the Volvo 70 days and the, the Volvo 65, the Volvo 60 days, there used to be two boat testing. So you used to be able to go out with your own team and test all the things that you wanted to test and have a benchmark. Whereas all these modern teams only have, there's only one team, there's only one boat. So you've got your own boat and the only people you can benchmark off are the other teams. That's you don't get the two boat testing in the way you used to. So that's how this whole thing has evolved out of that two boat testing into, I suppose, in some ways, uh, forensic analysis of the other teams and benchmarking yourself. That That's in, in this modern world how we have to do it. And surely now with the 65s, um, I mean, one design, you know that if your boat is set up differently to your opponent's, Th th there's a core difference, whereas you know, with an with an open design, you can have a bit of wiggle room, and things might come out the same. Exactly. I mean, to be honest, in most of those races in, with the Volvo 70s, the designer has won the almost won the race before it starts. Whereas this modern, this Volvo 65, you can see, and we've had three iterations of the, this. Will be the third iteration this time where the boats have raced, and they even as a one design class, they evolve each time. And with the new sails coming into the into the mix this time, and also the young the younger generation coming into this as well, it changes the whole dynamic. And and there were a lot of things from the first version of the Volvo 65 to the last race, the Action Nobel. The boats made leaps and bounds forward. The polars we had from the races before were nearly 15, 20% slower in places, you know, and that was at the end of the race. So 
one design class keeps evolving and you keep learning how to make it faster. And I think this next edition is going to be very similar for the, for the reasons I was saying, the, the new sales that are coming out and also the fact that dynamic of the, the teams is going to change. It used to be you'd, you'd look in your phone book for the top 10 sailors you could find with the budget that you had and you phone them up until you got the best guys you possibly could, whereas now you've got to fulfill certain criteria. Mm. And those guys don't come with, they're all incredibly good sailors, incredibly skilled sailors, but they haven't necessarily been in the Volvo Ocean Race scenario before, simply because it's all the other guys that were in the phone book were there before. So um, it's going to be a very interesting dynamic. And I think, you know, you've already seen with Emily, Emily Nagel, she, from what I did in the last race, she's evolved into this and taken that out into other teams. And I think all the professional race teams, it, it, it's a given. Even you see it now with the... Um, um, with the, the flying catamarans, you know, all the teams now, the data is out there in a, in a global format that everyone can see. And everyone's worked out that it, it's the best way to the best, most cost efficient way of evolving the boats. It, like I said, you used to have to have to do two boat testing, which was millions of pounds, whereas two teams, everything. Whereas now you can do it with a laptop and a computer and, and a forensic scientist who can understand and watch the other teams and take the best out of it and then feed that back to the sailors almost in some cases instantly and worst case at the end of the day okay but so so with that mike you you, you, you i had a few things i wanted to ask about i'm going to throw that all out because you've absolutely piqued my interest so with that in mind like you say everybody's now looking for these margins let's take the ocean race as a good example here certainly with the 65s we're talking one design that is your two boat testing uh, format to look at what your opponent's doing. Did you find yourself with T Max and Abel saying, "Look, this is working. What you're doing here, or you should be trying this, but don't do it until you're out of sight of anybody else." Because you you must know if you can spot it, they can spot it too. Uh, completely. So I'd give the guys a leg in my I, each leg. I'd do a data report or, or whatever testing session we did. And from that, they'd have a list of things we'd want to test from before. And I'd also have a list of things that I want to test going forward. And the guys automatically knew the list of things testing going forward. You, you do that out of sight of land. You do that away from the people. That's, that's us. That's us as a team doing our thing. Um, and yeah, I'll be honest, the sailors in the, in the, you know, it takes a lot, it takes a lot of trust for those guys who have been around five times, like the Brad Jacksons and the Jill Salters who've been around five times. For me to come in and sit down and go, look, guys, this is where you're fast, but I think you can be faster if you do this. And you know, this is this is what you could, and this sail's not performing, uh, and this heel angle's not performing. And they're like, yeah, but it feels good. And, and I think the best way to describe it is, you know, these guys, you give them the boat. That's what the, they're very talented people, and they will hit the number. The good guys hit the numbers almost straight away, but they can't necessarily describe how they do that. And my job is to take that feeling that they've got, that they've got in built in them, turn it into a number. And then I can pass that around to everyone in the team and try and get everyone in the team to hit that number. And it's translating that and giving the guys, giving the sailors modes so that they feel confident. Maybe they can't go as fast as they need to go, but they can get themselves into a mode where they're at 95%, where they're not going to drop off the back of the pack to stay in it until they can sort things out or they're tired or, you know, there's so many human elements in all of this you put the same driver on the helm every, every you know, every, he goes, he drives for four hours, sleeps for four hours, drives for four hours. His performance is coming down, you know, no matter how good they are, you know, the really good guys, it's only a little bit, but everyone's getting tired, you know, and the, and the evolution of that and giving them when they're tired, when they're hungry, when it's wet 
a mode that they can get themselves in that they know they're fast. They don't have to they don't have to light it out of the park and win, but they they can stay in the pack, get themselves back in a good scenario, and then wait for the opportunity to make a jump or make a move or, you know, and that and that's that's simply just the boat side of it. Then we bring that into the navigator side of it. The evol- you know, the navigator's looking for opportunities, playing when to play the cards, when not to play the cards. So it, it it's not just looking at one person boat speed and the speed of the boat. It's how the team develops around that, uh, and and all the, all the tools that I can give them to help them do that. So yeah, for sure, it's 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 also giving them confidence. I think is what I'm trying to say. You got to basically, I can give them confidence. Say, look, get yourself in this mode, you'll be fine. And we worked out. You know, we said I sat down in some briefings with the guys, and we we have our polars which evolve every leg. And the the polar that's the speed of the boat, what wind angle, obviously, and what speed. And those evolve every leg. And to win, to win a leg, we could be as long as we're above ninety-four percent polar, we could we could win a leg. But ninety-three percent, you wouldn't win a leg. It was there's one percent margin in a in a whatever two and a half thousand mile leg, and it's it seems like a tiny amount, but over that leg, it's actually quite a lot. And it you know it's finding all those little tiny things. And I think the best way I look at it is like the butterfly effect. I'm mm. trying to find tiny little things. That over the the feature of a thirty six thousand mile race add up to miles and hours, you know, hundreds of miles, hours, seconds, whatever they need at the end of the race. Um, and it, it's like I say, getting them there. At the start of the race, Axon and Bell, we had a lot. We were scra- you know, the, the guys had put the boat team together. We had the new boat, which was great, but we put the team together. Everyone was still trying to gel. Everyone was still trying to find the modes. There were teams like Dong Feng and Matt Frey had been out there for a year in front of us. Um, and they found a lot of the modes, and then there was Bauer uh, with with Brunel, and he 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 had a few really good reaching modes, but then didn't go so well in other conditions early on in the race. So it was trying to find all of those, and also different cards for different opposition. When to when to play the fast card, when to not show it, when to just <laughs> hang on to them. You know, if there's a weather front coming, that that was all part of the evolution with Jules as well. The, the philosophy of the navigation and what he needed you know if the boat's faster than everyone else it's really easy for the navigator to do his job sure yeah so you always look good don't you yeah but when the boat's slower the navigator's job gets harder and he has to leverage harder and and that's that becomes you know then that's when the good navigators can pick up the slack but they can't pick up the slack for thirty six thousand miles if you see what i mean so um yeah no it's it's a very much evolving game um, and it, it's fascinating, you know, it's, you see, you see formula one evolve each year, you see the teams play the games and yeah, we were playing all the games as part of it's what the race is, you know, and has been for, for as long as it began. You, one thing that stuck in my mind, you were talking about sometimes when you're talking to the sailors and, you know, you've got to say to them, have you tried this or have you tried that? And sometimes that can be a bit difficult. Of course, was the fact that the finishes I mean, hell, the entire legs were so close. I mean, it was nip and tuck. It came down to boat lengths in Newport. Was the fact that the results were like that, was it easier for you to say to them, two millimetres here will make a difference? Did you did you find them kind of opening up to those sort of accumulation of marginal gains? Yeah, complete, yeah. I mean, after the... After the prologue, Sanchenzo, uh, you know, after that, yeah, definitely, they could see it, it, it was coming down to margins, very small margins. And like I said, the butterfly effect, you do one, you, you, catch, a, you catch a weather system half an hour earlier, 2,000 miles ago, or you, you know, you can do, you can go 10 miles 
not even 10, two miles more than your opposition a thousand miles ago, that sets you up in such a stronger position, um, you know, as you get further down the track. And, and it is those tiny things. And the sailors get to a point where you, can, you can't even feel it. You know, I think uh, I watched the Emily Nagel um, brief and when they did the, the record attempt, when they beat the record over the 600 miles, she, to her, it felt like a normal, kind of a normal day. It was tough, but they got on with it. And the next <laughs> yeah. thing it's like, oh, we're breaking the record. You know, and it's, it's those tiny setups, those modes that we could get them in. Um, and they knew it was comfortable. They knew they could drive and they just, it, it felt good and they went for it. But there was so much evolution to get into that mode to find that that the other, a lot of the other teams couldn't like Brunel was only, they were less than 10 miles away. Mm. They couldn't, they couldn't quite find that extra mode. And uh, there was a bit of the Gulf stream involved with that as well, but that weather preparation is all part of that at the same time. So we'd, we'd done so much research on the Gulf stream and where it was. And Jules is, that's one of the things Jules has always been hot on ever since I've known him is is Gulf stream. And yeah, it's one of the first questions he asks as soon as you get into the, the Atlantic and, and off you go. And then weeks later we do the homework and present the report and, yeah, so uh, he did an amazing job. You know, he was looking for it. He knew it. He knew what he was looking for, and he found it. Yeah, it's really interesting that you mention uh, Team Brunel with the uh, with the record that Team Axenabel now has the fastest. Uh, 65 or the fastest uh, ocean race boat in his entire history over 24 hours. Interesting, you mentioned Brunel because we always celebrate Team Axenabel, but on that. 24 hours, there were a lot of teams that were celebrating because, of course, in race control, you couldn't say. Yeah, you have broken the record, but somebody else has also broken it. But um, let's go back to you at the start of the race then. Okay. So um, obviously, I mean, you sort of half alluded to it. Team Axonabel, uh, you had your boat, you had, you were there announced early. Um, and then, of course, we had all the drama at the beginning with um, Simeon and the managing company and, and all the politics there. Putting that to one side, um, for you as onshore navigator, prepping everything uh, to get going, then with all the ins and outs happening with the teams, suddenly you realising I'm going to have to go sailing now. Was it as easy as going from, I was going to be onshore, now I'm going to have to do this on the boat? Was it as easy as, I just need to find some sailing boots? Uh, it, it's, it was always a bit of a shock. You know, we never planned that. We'd, we'd had the conversation two weeks earlier, look, all the teams are going to deal with something in the race. We don't know what it's going to be and when it's going to happen. We'd had that conversation two weeks before that. We just didn't realize it was going to be us at the start of the race at that time. You know, so you're kind of prepared for anything. And, and in my job as onshore, at that time, as onshore navigator, and we had uh, Axel Magdal as well, doing a lot of weather routing offsite for us as well to help. Um, my job is effectively to do everything the navigator would do, except the difference is I pass it to the navigator at start time and off he goes. Admittedly, you know, Jules does his own homework and is always watching, but I fill in the gaps and, and help him and anything he needs. So technically I've done that job as a support role and all I do is hand over. Whereas that time I, I handed it to him and he handed it back and goes, yeah, yeah I'm not going. And at the same, at the same time he was like, and you can have my jacket as well. So, um, you know, to be fair, Jules was super supportive. We never wanted to be in that situation. Um, but um, yeah, it was a feature of what happened. And, you know, <laughs> you got to pick up the ball and you run with it. And I'd always said I'd committed to the race. And whether it was the team or Simeon, I'd, yeah, I'd quit my job. I'd done everything to be in that position. I was like, I've got to keep going with this race. This race, this snowball started and I'm going to keep going. So if, if this is how it's going to be, let's roll with it, you know, so... <laughs> Uh, and, and that first leg, I mean, it, it didn't go badly 
for you guys. I mean, there were points actually where you were really performing well. Was there ever a moment when, you know, you're blasting along, you've made the right call, you've taken that right balance between risk and reward. Were you ever thinking, eh, maybe maybe I'll stay on a boat or maybe I'll, I'll try and get on a boat for the next one, actually get, get wet going around the world? Uh, you, you know, I'd have loved to, but I always knew Jules was coming back in some form. You know what I mean? I, yeah, no, yeah, you know, it was always that, you know, it's always the goal. We'll see what happens going forward. That's, you know, ultimately the goal. But now my role was always to always, and I'd committed to that to support Jules, whatever happened in that race. So, and if, if that was being on the boat at that time, that was my job for the team, get that leg done and then pass back to Jules. So, uh, but it was, yeah, it was an interesting first start. And some of the tactics, I mean, we, we were one person down, we couldn't jive the boat. You know, we got spat out the back off the start, going around the thing, going around the top. Simeon and I, I was driving and grinding and driving, and then Simeon was grinding and completely freestyling. Um, and then once we got settled going out, because obviously I hadn't sailed against any of the other navigators, I'd obviously sailed the boat and knew some of the modes we needed to get in, but I didn't, I hadn't sailed against the other navigators in that setup with all the other teams. And we go to jive and we couldn't, you could see the other teams could jive quicker than us. And I knew where I wanted to be and I was trying to bounce off. Uh, we had Dong Feng coming out and they they bounced back in and I knew I wanted to get onto the end. We'd already talked about that point off on Mira. That's, that was always the plan. So whether it was me or Jules, it didn't matter. That was always the plan for us and how we wanted to do it. The question was how I could bounce the other navigators off us to get into that position. And um, oh, it was fascinating. It was great. It was great to be there. It was great to bounce off the other navigators and see what was happening and play the game. Um, but yeah, I, I was expecting to watch Jules do it. That's how it was going to play out. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so 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 happy to go there. Realize I can still do this. This is not a problem. And then and then take your take your seat on the shore. So let's let's get back to that role again then, because um, you paint a really fascinating picture in terms of how uh, you you seem to put everything into your equation: the mood of the sailors, you know, their confidence, fatigue, the boat, everything. At its core at its basic when you are looking for performance edges i'm guessing your number one go-to thing is going to be the tracker and then the obrs on the other boats the photos the pictures the videos yeah and i mean the the obrs do a great job and they did a great job and eventually some of the teams were like okay we've, you're doing too good a job <laughs> you know and, and the other thing is, because I was sitting, you know, I was sitting in the UK, I think Justin Chisholm wrote an article at one point that how can someone sitting in the south coast of England, not on the Volvo Ocean Race, know more than the sailors know on the boat? And simply because I could sit here and look at um, Axe and Abel, look at their boat speed, look at their heel angle, look at all the photos of everything that's going, look at the tracker, and then I could compare that to all the other boats. Whereas the guys on board, all they've got are the binoculars and the AIS track. On board, and that's all. They, and that's even if they're within ten miles. If if they're more than that, they're completely blind. And I think that's someone that it. That's something that a lot of people outside the race, outside the sailors, don't see is that outside that ten mile range, you're flying blind against the other boat. You, all you've got is your range and bearing, and that's it. Um, whereas obviously everyone on shore has the tracker and can see everything that's going on. And that, and as they tack and jive, and it, it evolves, but when you're out there on the boats that, and that was something I learned from that first year, you're very much on your own. And that's, you know, trying to keep in, in that distance, trying to keep the boats together. It, it's, it's pretty important sometimes. 
It's very interesting you talk about how powerful that tracker can be. Like you say, for somebody like you with a keen eye and, um, you know, it's not just anybody looking at the tracker. You need to know what you're looking for. You need to understand the science of sailing, of course, to a in-depth level. Um, but obviously your own boat, for for those of us that, are, you know, have seldom got our hands on a very expensive yacht computer system, the kind of thing that the 65s are decked out with, your own boat is providing you with an incredible amount of data at the end of the leg. I mean, you give us give us an overview as to how much information you can glean off your boat once you get the dongle off and you plug it in. So, yeah, we, we, I think it's about 280 data points every second for a whole leg. So I think we're up to, oh, yeah, I can't remember. There's in some cases like over a gig of data. Um, that I get back that I've got to process through, filter through. And then when we get closer, you know, th then I'll look at like for the record run, I'll look at that one hour of the record run, or I'll, I'll look at certain scenarios where the guys, so Jules will write me a notepad of things of, you know, on this day at this time, we went well against Brunel or at this time. And then I'll go back through the photos and videos, try and find that information and then match that up to the R data to see what was happening. Um, and it also, the one thing I don't, our guys didn't tend to record was the drivers and things, but as the race evolves, you can pretty quickly work out certain drivers have strength in certain scenarios and you can see who's driving at the time. And you know, it, it's, it is, it is a coaching role at the same time. You're trying yeah. to give those guys confidence, like you're really good here, but we need to find this motor. This is what you've got to try to get yourself a little bit of extra depth. And, you know, there are so many different, like with a keel count scenario and the main sheet traveler track, and there's lots of different things you can you can set but some people so it, it was back to that feeling the really good guys have the feeling first go and the other guys can feel it but they can't necessarily get that feeling and that's what part of this job is to find those numbers to get them that feeling and and with the young guys i think in the next race that's going to be really important because once once they feel it once that muscle memory all of that comes and they find it again but it, it's just trying to get people up to that up to that level as quickly as possible the way that you're talking about it i can tell that you're you enjoy being a bit of a numbers guy, and I totally get that. I'm all about the science as well. But you give me this impression, and I'm wondering, you know, is there ever the case the boat comes in, you get given the data, they're knackered, they're wrecked, you process everything, and I can see you sort of running down the hall, and you're like, guys, I've just, it's unbelievable. If you just raise your dagger ball by this much, do you ever get the sailors going... Not now, just, you know, give it a minute. No, I, I definitely, you take the data, you go away, you sit on it for two weeks and you, it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like being a coat. You wait for the sailors to come to you. Yeah. And that's, and that's very much, you know, and if they don't want to hear it, they just won't come to you. But I, I guarantee at this level, at some point, they all come into the office, they all sit down. And so what about, you know, they ask you the question and very softly we break into it. Oh, do you want to see? And here's the, you know, I've already got it prepared and here you go, you read it. And it's not like me telling, it's just like, there you go, there's the facts. And the facts speak for themselves. You don't have, you don't, the beauty of the forensic science part of it and the numbers part of it, you don't have to justify it. You don't have to, it, it's written on paper, black and white, yes or no, you know? So, um, and, and even then it's like, oh, but we, you know, then they'll come back. Oh, well, there's no way we could get into that mode. There's no way. And I go, I know, but then, then you show them a photo of, look, there's Bauer doing it. And they're like, oh, okay, right. Okay. You know, and it's building that confidence. And then you, that's part of the next training session is go out and try that, you know, try getting yourself in that mode. And, um, so, and with a, with a feeling, you know, it's the same thing. Sometimes, sometimes the boat feels great and is really fast. Other times the boat feels great and is really slow. And other times the boat feels terrible, but is really fast. Yeah. And it's, 
it's trying to disseminate the guys are like oh we woke up this day it just didn't work something didn't happen you know and was it weed on the rudder was it you know they just can't get the boat to go and they don't have the right mode so and then i'll go back through and look at that and try and find what was happening and, and then how other boats were set up at the time and the sails you can find a setup you can find a mode and an angle and a trim and a shape but then of course the sail changes its shape over time you know that's natural and so you do have this kind of moving target but of course you are coming off the last edition with all this tons of data and i'm imagining that that data will be very valuable as all the teams will have for anybody that's selling the 65s next time i know it's not north's intention of let's introduce a new sale wardrobe so that that data is not so valuable. But what does that mean to you in terms of where do you start if you were going to do it again? Okay, well now we have new sales. Is any of the data valuable? Oh, no. Still all the boat data, all the keel data, all the daggerboard data, uh, main, uh, sorry, the main, yeah, the sort of the main set of the, the mass setup. Um, yeah, the boat weight, stacking, all that kind of, so all the boat data, everything is good. And even the sail data, we, we'd use the old data as the two-boat test to start with. So the old data becomes the boat that you're trying to beat. And then you've got the new sails and you see then how far ahead you are of that. So automatically, you've got your two-boat testing from day one. Um, and that's how the data is still valuable. Even though it's a completely different setup, you go through the same process as you would in the last race to, to learn the data, to learn the knowledge, but you, ju you just use it as a benchmark. So you're so much further ahead. Um, yeah, so no, it's 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 still there. It's still super useful, but we, we just go through the whole process again. And as a you know, as a navigator setting up to navigate, you'd do that anyway, almost no matter what. So you'd go through the same processes because it's it's not just about loading the software and off you go. It's about knowing the mathematics behind it. It's about knowing how the the software interprets what you're trying to do. It's making sure everything's calibrated. All the all the day, you know, all the sensors are doing everything you want to do, and you know. You can get given that beautiful, super flashy Volvo, you know, software package and all the computers and all the gear, but if it's not set up right, it's 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 worse than useless, if you see what I mean. So as part of that whole structuring pack, we'd go through the calibration again, we go through the sale checks again, we'd test each sale, you'd go sale testing. Uh, and you whether it's an old sale or a new sale, it, it's the same process. Now um the, the, I have a little bit of a bone to pick with you, with you specifically. So I uh, uh, I have to ask you this because uh, Conrad Coleman, who was my um, the host of the Daily Show uh, with me in Alicante, he if he watches this, he will be annoyed if I do not bring this up with you. Um, you came in um, during a couple of the legs, and you came into Alicante, and you helped us on the show. You were giving a sort of you know bit of a, a weather brief, which was really good. I got a lot out of it. I'm sure the viewers did too. In the race headquarters in Alicante, there you know, is all the data. And I'm imagining data that you would love to get your hands on. And you, I don't, I mean, I, I believe that you came out and as a sort of a, a, a jest to annoy some of the other teams, you said, oh yeah, there's computers hanging around. I was just pulling all the data off. I had all the secret data and everything. And me and Conrad got in so much trouble when that rumour made it back to us. Do you want to apologise now? 
Oh, I'm sorry, you guys. Yeah, I think Chinese Whisper. <laughs> I, I think Chinese Whispers got involved with that. Oh, uh, sure. Well, I turned up. Yeah, I turned up and there was data, but it. Yeah, there wasn't any of the exciting stuff I was looking for. <laughs> and everyone, uh, Phil Lawrence did a very good job of walking. He, he saw me walk in and he was walked around in front of me and just made sure all the screens were off before I got there. So um, now everyone in race control did an incredibly good job, uh, and I was very aware at the time that. Let's just say at the time I was cautious of what would happen, and then of course we all got to, we all got to New Zealand, um, and then it kicked off that Roscoe was in race control, and it was, he, <laughs> he got all the data, and he was oh he was yeah, he had everything, and and of course then uh, then we won the leg into New Zealand, Axenoval won the leg into New Zealand, which made it even worse, and the whole thing got blown out of proportion, and then I was like oh, I'm just going to go and hide in the office here for a while and see what happens. So um, but now it was now everyone in race control was incredibly professional, they did a very good job, did exactly what they were supposed to do. Um, uh, you know, and it was a pleasure to be there. It's kind of sad the way it worked out, but it was an absolute pleasure to be there and be part of it. But um, I can assure you, I, yeah, I, you know, I was looking, but they, everyone did a very good job of making sure there was nothing there. Do, do, do not worry. I personally went around and minimised all the screens. It was just amusing to us that somehow this room would go back. Honestly, me, me and Conrad got in so much trouble for that. For the next uh, edition, the uh, route has been announced I'm sure you've looked at it. You know, everybody's been sort of pour, pouring over it. Obviously, early days at the moment. Is there any legs that you looked at and thought, that's going to be a fun one in terms of the game of chess, which is weather routing? Yeah, the China up to China. So Cape Town up to China. You got the, yeah, you got the Agulhas current. You got across the equator. Then you got to get into the South China Sea. Then there's all the pots and the fishing boats and that whole, it's one of the most densely populated shipping channels in the world. Then you got to race up all the way up to, you know, up to China, up to Shenzhen and you, and you stop over for the, for the ocean race. Um, and then getting out of there on the way back down again, those legs are going to be no question going to be tricky. You know, that's, there's so many variables and also the Mediterranean at the end, that last mm. leg coming into the med, if, if the boats are all in a similar position to where they were last race, as in equal points, it, oh, it, it's a, I don't want to say it's a lottery, but you, there's, it's a high get high stakes game of snakes and ladders. That's for sure. Yeah. Very high stakes game. Cause there's so many different weathers, you, you know, you could, you could be beating into Gibraltar and 40 knots of breeze, or you could be drifting through. It just depends on the weather scenario at the time. So, you know, you've got to be prepared for everything. And does the, which voice in you is the loudest, the sort of the team member who thinks, no, I want to be faster and I want to be faster by a long way than the competition or the spectator that goes, I like it when the boats are finishing 30 seconds apart. Which way do you want it to go for the next edition? Uh, I mean, I think when you, for, for the spectators, you saw the tracker last time when the boats came over the top of the UK heading into the, uh, into the Baltic and they were, absolutely you know seconds apart and that whatever over a million views on the tracker and everyone was talking about it i mean that's sport that's that's racing that's what it's all about i think the, the closer and it all depends how the points format comes out for the next race but the, the closer it is the better the sailors enjoy it the tighter it is the better the competition the more people try evolve come up with the tricks you know uh, the more sportsmanship there is and I, I think it's better for everyone but you know, the, the evolution, I think the, the, the new 60s coming out, the, the Amoka boats are going to be, you know, technologically super advanced, but I just hope there's enough for them. I think you'll find in this, in this early phase, like we've seen in the old, one boat is fast and the other's kind of full of suit and then mm -hmm. get up to that. Whereas I think the 65s are going to come out slugging from day one. You know, it's literally, it, that's how it's going to be. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, so so with that in mind, then as a final question, what advice would you have to a team that's going in? Let, let's say with the sixty fives, as somebody who has been pouring over the data and the measurements and everything, with a wink and a nudge, where would you advise the teams to go? Look at that area. There's some speed to be had there. Say no more. I, I, the one thing I would say, and this is what I said to the sailors last time, you've got to have an open mind. Hmm. The, the way you sell these boats is not the way you sell a lot of other boats in the world. And that's what we, you know, we went, I went into this with all the experience of the, the kind of the, the big far maxis and all the maxi boats and things like that. And the Volvo 70s, you don't sell these boats in the same way. It's a very different scenario. And the way the boats were designed originally, they're, they're really well with the way far, they're slightly through a refit and through a few things, they've come out slightly heavier than they were supposed to in the original format. And that changes things massively. So um, that, that changes how the boats perform against polars and how you set things up and um, yeah. And all, yeah. And drag and things, you know, I think there's still an evolution to come in drag. We're still sailing around with boats that are very aero drag orientated. And I think how you manage that as well is something that's going to evolve in this, in this next race. And with the new, like the North Helix sails and the new nylon sail, that's a car, that's a kind of big risk reward card. You could play that sail because these boats sail around at about 132 degrees true wind angle, which is actually really high for any normal boat that sails in, in any other regatta in the world. And these new nylon sails are going to let them put the bow down and sort of get, hopefully get down to 138, 140. But at the same time, that's a fragile sail that requires a lot of manpower to put up and take it down and manage it. So all of a sudden you've got this, this, and if you rip it, you're done. It's out. You're not going to have the opportunity. You know, what two races, everyone's racing around with, um, with sewing machines and things like that. And those have all gone now. Nobody, nobody's seen a sewing <laughs> machine on a Volvo boat for years, you know, but if you rip, you know, so yeah, it, that, that brings a whole new element to it as well. Uh, and managing that sail, which I think is going to be super interesting. And just to see how these new sails, I think it's really great for North. They can benchmark their new technology on a, on a, a proven one design racehorse, you know, so uh, they can, they can show you the evolution and then go back to their customer and say, look, this is how it works. So um, yeah, it'd be very interesting to see. Okay. Okay. One more question then, because it's really fascinating to hear how, what sounds to me anyway, like you're already chomping at the bit to get a chance to uh, use the scientific lens that you've got to uncover those little bits of speed. So if you had a chance to get involved with the next edition with a team hunting for performance, would you prefer to go 65 where, like you say, it's going to be nip and tuck straight from the off or the Amokas foils, something a little bit new and potentially more of an open mind? Um, Two very different schools of thought. I I absolutely love both that there is going to be a good race in the 65s. You know, it's going to be nip and tuck. And it's, you're going to see, yeah, two very different scenarios. And I, you know, I'm super open to both sides of the coin. Absolutely super open. But um, I, yeah, I think this, that you're going to see a lot of evolution in the Amoka boats, especially from the fact that they normally sail around with one person on and now we're putting five people on them. So that alone is a big jump forward. And also the foil development, I think it's going to be great for offshore sailing, you know, let's just say the rest of the world's foiling. And now, you know, now we're getting the ocean race foiling. So not quite in the same way, but I think there's a huge amount of offshore evolution to come in that. Well, that'll, that'll destroy your true wind angle that you were talking about before, wouldn't it? Um, all right. Okay. Vosco, let's leave it there. There's so much, I'm going to be washing this back and I'm going to be um, thinking about a lot of what you said. It's fascinating to hear just how important all those little areas are. Uh, once a boat crosses the finish line uh, is, and uh 
yeah, I'm sure a team will be thinking very carefully about, okay, we've got to get a numbers person in. We've got to get some people measuring this one. So thank you very much for highlighting that world for us. No worries. Thank you. And uh, good luck. And hopefully, yeah, we'll, we'll see you all soon out there somewhere.